For more than 30 years, our next guest has interviewed numerous distinguished authorities on scientific topics. Ira Flato has talked about science for cable networks and talk shows such as Today, Oprah, Charlie Rose, and Merv Griffin. He hosts the popular weekly national public radio show, Talk of the Nation Science Friday. As a program which regularly explores science topic ourselves, we try to listen to Ira Flato's offerings every week on NPR, and we're delighted to have him join us today to discuss his new book, Present at the Future, From Evolution to Nanotechnology, Candid and Controversial Conversations on Science and Nature. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Ira Flato. Well, thank you. Uh, Present at the Future reviews conversations which you've held on Science Friday, which are described as candid and controversial. The, the word controversial caught my eye because in your introduction you noted that a listener once expressed some surprise to you that scientists were arguing on your show over the demise of the dinosaurs. She was shocked to hear about this. She'd assumed that science was about finding the truth and that scientists arguing about the truth struck her as odd. You talk about uh, science being a moving target. Well, it is a moving target. You know, it, uh, what we know today is, is probably not the same that we're going to know uh, tomorrow. Let me give you a few examples from, from the very obvious, the old, the earth is flat, so we know it's, you know, more knowledge a little bit later in time. We know it's not flat. Um, we know, uh, we, we've been told over the, the years, and it's been, commonly accepted knowledge that your brain is very much the brain you got is the brain you have you were born with x number of new billions of neurons and you're going to die or lose them and there's nothing we can do about them and if they get injured or whatever you're not going to recover that well now we know that's not true we know that uh, the brain is very plastic it is able to be molded and reshaped and to take over the functions some parts of the brain will take over the functions of other parts that get injured and no longer can be used. People with strokes have been retrained to use their limbs or parts of their body uh, that have never been used before. Um, just, just two examples, you know, and, and another, another one of my favorites from the book is cosmology. Um, we discovered a few years ago that we, we don't know what the heck the universe is made out of, you know? I mean, if you look outside, you go outside at night and look up in the sky, everything you see up there is only 4% of the universe. 4%. We're not talking 20, 30, 4% of what we see is, is, is our knowledge of the universe. There is another 70% 70, 70 called dark energy, this spooky stuff that's like anti-gravity. It's sort of pushing everything else apart in, in the universe. Instead of, instead of slowing down, the universe is speeding up as it moves away from itself. We used to think that it's going to possibly stop and collapse. Einstein wondered about this. Uh, years ago, he put a little constant in, in the, his universal constant, and he, he said this was the biggest mistake of my life and quickly erased it, and now it seems that that constant should go back. And, you know, so you have this dark matter. There's, besides the dark energy, there's this dark matter that's made out of strange particles you can't see, and we can only, we can only think and think predict what they might be. So science is really, you know, just trying to take snapshots of ever-changing, fleeting uh, knowledge that we have. There's some very fascinating uh, little tidbits throughout uh, Present at the Future. You note that Albert Einstein spent the last decades of his life trying to find a theory of everything, an explanation that would link atomic forces with gravity. He failed. But you seem quite optimistic that both astrophysicists studying the universe as a whole and the physicists that are smashing atoms are both racing to accomplish this from opposite approaches, and you, th you think they may succeed in the near future. We're hoping. It's very funny because 
the ti- the world of the tiny, the very small, is re- is is sort of melding with the world of the very big, and it's almost out of necessity. In other words, if we want to if we want to go back into in time and see where the forces of the universe were united, they all happened, you know, sometime around the Big Bang. Now they you know these particles that don't exist. Now we don't have nuclear atom smashers that are big enough have enough energy that could recreate the kind of gnarling and smashing that went on during, you know, the creation uh, or during the universe, uh, the Big Bang era. But we can look up in the sky and look for remnants of it itself by, you know, looking further and further back in time with, with stronger and stronger telescopes. The further out in space you look, the further back in time you go. So we try to look that way to find those, those tiny particles that may have been around. And then we try to see, well, maybe we can create some of them. Maybe we can recreate some of them, in a, some not-so-high energetic ones in our puny little, comparatively speaking, atom smashers. So there are new experiments going on. Is, is, uh, one, exp- one very important experiment that's going to be going on next year in something called the Large Hadron Collider. That's a fancy term for a big uh, particle atom smasher. Where they're trying to discover what's called the Higgs boson. This is a particle... It's hard to believe. This is a particle that, if true, according to theory, is the reason why everything has mass. You know, you look you look around us. We, we it's it's obvious to us. You pick up a telephone. You pick up something. It's heavy. It has mass being pulled on by gravity. Well, physicists don't see any real reason for that. So they 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 have theorized there must be some particle that gives the mass to everything, some field that permeates all around us. And they think that next year in uh, CERN, in the giant atom smasher on the border of Switzerland and France, that they will be able to actually conduct an experiment and find evidence for this particle that gives everything mass. It's, it's a very exciting time if you're a physicist. Yes, I, I was really quite taken with your diagram on page 52 in the book that shows how over time dark energy has, has uh, surpassed that of dark matter. And it's, it's, it's just a very strange Alice in Wonderland world, isn't it? It's actually a lot of fun to talk about. And 10 years from now, they may not be good predictions. That's what's happening with string theory. String theory was a you know, set of theories and ideas that were promulgated about two decades ago, but they're almost untestable. You can predict all you want and make all kinds of things you know, and ideas, but if you can't create an experiment that tests the prediction, it's sort of not a useful prediction. And so far, it's been 20 years, and no one has been able to actually find the these these supposed to create 11 different dimensions. You know, we have three or four dimensions. What are these other dimensions? Where do they exist? Well, we have predictions, but now we can't make any tests on it. So it's sort of losing favor now, the string theory that supposedly has unified all of all the forces in nature. You started that chapter with a quote from Richard Feynman noting that string theories don't make predictions, they make excuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a good line. Well, you know, physicists are good for making excuses. Cosmology is fascinating, and you started off talking about the human brain. Oliver Sacks was a very curious interviewee, apparently on Science Friday. He talked about this man, Clive Waring. He had extensive brain damage, yeah. yet was able to retain considerable musical ability. He can conduct an entire symphony. It seems that music links our entire brains together. It's interesting. I talk about in the book, President, at the future, that Clive has a memory of seven seconds. I think, he, I think Oliver told me he started at seven and maybe down to four seconds. Now, he can't remember anything past four seconds. If you think you have trouble where you dropped your car keys, you know, he can't remember. But he has like a savant talent. 
He has a talent that he can get up in front of. He's, he had great musical ability. This was an accident that occurred to his brain. He had a viral attack, and it, it uh, disconnected, I guess, parts of his brain from working. But he can. He was a musician. And he can still get up in front of an audience and conduct a whole symphony, and not remember he didn't had it done anything. Or he could sit down in front of his piano and play something. You just start him playing, tell him to start playing from there. He can play the whole thing and not remember. And yet, uh, you know, how does this happen? Where, where is music in, in the brain connected? And, and, and Oliver Sacks is, I think, it's probably the topic of his next book. Uh, he is now fascinated by this phenomenon and, and trying to do more research on it and experiment it because we know that music, is, music and the brain are very much connected. People use music therapy. You know, music will soothe you. We know there's this mind-body connection. And where is it happening all in the brain? We don't know. Although we now have tools, we have these imaging tools that we can watch the brain light up as you think. Different parts of the brain will light up as you have certain emotions and certain thoughts and make certain ideas happen. And these are new tools we never had before. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can lie down in this machine. It doesn't hurt you at all. It watches where the how the blood work. You know, when you when you exercise, blood rushes to the area. Same thing happens in your brain when you exercise. Your brain it demands more oxygen, and blood rushes there. And so we can watch where the you know the blood is rushing as your brain works, and it tells us what parts of the brain are lighting up. Basically, they light up in colors on the machines, and it shows you know what you, you know what parts of the brain are thinking or working or doing something at that time finding the emotional centers, finding the thinking centers. There was one experiment recently uh, about using these, these scanners as a lie detector machine. They were, you know, they were having people lie about things, and they were watching the conflict that actually goes on in the brain. They're watching different parts of the emotional centers light up. Of, should I lie or should I not? You know? If I tell this lie, what, what, you know, what, what are the consequences? It was very interesting to watch. We're speaking with Ira Flato, the host of National Public Radio's Science Friday. Um, in your book, your discussion on sleep was something I enjoyed quite a bit, having suffered through medical residency myself, where I was supposedly <laughs> trading off a sleep for learning at 4.30 a.m., which I thought was not a good trade. Uh, why we sleep at all has been a major biological mystery. It appears we're now unraveling it. You talk about that in the book. Well, we talk about sleep being a place to consolidate ideas. You know, it's still a very mysterious place, uh, and what role sleep does take uh, at nighttime, consolidating ideas, what do dreams mean, and why do we dream. But there's some really interesting research, very solid research, done by a guy named Stickold at Harvard, I think is where he was. And uh, I, we, we followed his career over the years as he did this one very simple experiment. He took, he took his students, as you know, college students are usually guinea pigs for a lot of experiments in college. <laughs> And he had them play Tetris, you know, and he had them learn new and, new and different uh, skills. And he found that in learning these skills, if you didn't get seven hours of sleep at night, you never really cemented the skill. And it was really crucial that you get not six, not five. You had to get at least seven hours sleep at night. So if you wanted to learn how to play the piano better, you wanted to become better at Tetris or whatever, you had to get that sleep, and he would prove it by keeping people awake or get, allowing them to sleep at various, you know, rates. And I said to him, you know, I, I can't learn. I'm trying to learn a new instrument. I'm, I'm in my 50s. I'm trying to learn an instrument. I, you know, 
I said, I never get any. I don't, I don't get more than four or five hours of sleep a night. He says, bingo. That's why it's so hard for people, older people, to learn things. None, older people just don't get that kind of sleep anymore. And he says, you really need to sleep. It was, it was really eye-opening to me, so to speak, you know, that this was so instrumental in learning a new, uh, a new skill. If you want to learn it, get that sleep. Things are going on in your brain that consolidate and cement in that uh, hand-eye coordination that you need. Yeah, someone speculates in your book that some medical residents are physiologically asleep when they're prescribing medicines, and I want to know for the record, I, I, I'm certain that's true. <laughs> yeah, I've been in the emergency room myself where somebody's just woken up and, in, and examining me and they're still blinking his eyes. Yes, we, we've learned over the years that sometimes when you're, when you're pondering something, to sleep on it really does allow you to sort of reshuffle the deck, and, and ideas come the next day that you were sort of stuck on. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I know. It happens to me, you know, a, a lot of times. Uh, I can't sleep sometimes at night, and I get up out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and sit down with a pad of paper. Wow, that problem I was trying to figure out is now crystal clear. You had some uh, some very fascinating interviews uh, in, in the book. I especially liked your talk with Jane Goodall, uh, noting in particular how Louis Leakey had sent her to Cambridge to get a Ph.D. so she'd be respected as much right. as anything else. How she ran into some snobbery over her methods, even though she'd been in the field for years. Her, she was criticized for naming the chimps that she'd studied. And, and despite these armchair critics, she really had made some, some fabulous breakthroughs. Yeah, she has had an incredible career. Overcoming the male bias in science has always been one. In fact, years ago, if you wanted to file a patent you know, with the U.S. Patent Office, you had to have your husband co-sign it because you could not be smart enough to have thought of it yourself. Wow. We no longer, thank goodness, live in those days. Uh, but she went through the, you know, the, she went through the initiation of being a female scientist, a woman scientist, uh, and what that entailed. Uh, and she is probably the source of one of my greatest aha moments on the radio. Um, uh, we were doing. A, she's a free thinker. She thinks for herself. We were concluding our an interview. I talk about it in in, in present at the future because it really was present at the future. Uh, and uh, a listener had asked her if she was if there were any other apes that she was trying to discover or left to discover. And she said, yeah, there was one ape species that, that hadn't been discovered yet, but she was interested in finding it. And I was the only one on the radio who didn't get it. I finally said to her, are you talking about Yeti, Sasquatch, the abominable snowman? She said, yeah, I think it really exists. I think it's out there. We now have hair and fur samples with possible DNA on it. And I think it's just a matter of time until we find that. And, I, and, and since then, I've seen other works of hers in which she has talked about, you know, still believing in the possibility out there. And, uh, but, you know, these are these moments. Like, wow, who would ever have thought that Jane Goodall would believe in, you know, Sasquatch? Well, Ira, if we had more time, I'd talk about the UC Davis expedition to find Sasquatch that I participated in back in 1972. <laughs> but that's for another day. But. But That's the subject of another story. It is, but I, I, I too was startled about Jane Goodall uh, reading in Present at the Future. Uh, she made a statement that really just hit me between the eyes. She said that after the September 11th attacks, traveling around, she found that Americans were reluctant to admit they cared about the environment as it might seem unpatriotic. Yeah, I, I thought that was startling at the same time not given how issues have been framed in the U.S. currently. Did that, did that shock you as well? Yeah, well, I think Europeans, you see, the Europeans are way ahead of us in the environment. And um, they, have, they, have a whole, they have green parties. They have much more, uh, they're much more ahead of us about controlling greenhouse gases. But I think that, that may go along with the whole idea of 
if you're not American, you're unpatriotic. The whole French idea, look how the whole French idea has turned itself around now. Yeah. Um, it's, now, it's now patriotic to be French thinking. Um, so uh, it, it is shocking, but, you know, it's a big world out there, and that's the, that's the problem of this ocean that we have on both sides of us. It, it saved us from a lot of destruction during two world wars, but it also has isolated us tremendously from other countries. People in other countries constantly mix around and, and talk to one another and see each other culturally. We're very isolated over here, and I, you know, hopefully the internet will help out with that a little bit more. But uh, it, it's something we have to deal with. Well, in the book, you talk about some controversies that may not really be controversies. Uh, you talked about evolution and noted that intelligent design advocates were trying to slip their so-called theories into curricula by insisting that instructors, quote, teach the controversy, unquote, when you know, in fact, there really isn't any, any great controversy to teach. No, in fact, uh, no, no real biologist believes there ever, you know, there ever was a so-called controversy to, to teach the controversy. That was... Um, that was the idea put out by the creationists, was to, to create a controversy where none existed. And uh, scientists may not agree about how the exact mechanism, mechanism of evolution works, but they're in all and certainly in general agreement that evolution is real. Well, as regarding issues of global warming and such, you, you took an analysis in the book of, of various means of generating power. You were rather critical of those new programs turning corn into ethanol, noting it's inefficient, wasteful of food, and if we could break down cellulose and lignin in plant parts we don't eat, it would make a lot more sense. Yeah, corn is not a very efficient way to make ethanol. Um, President Bush said this years ago, that he, would, he looked at switchgrass. President is sort of a closet green person. If you, you look at his background... <laughs> Switchgrass used to cover the prairies. It used to grow five feet high, and you know the settlers would come out and see this, these weeds, like giant weeds growing, they, because they would grow everywhere. You can grow switchgrass everywhere. It could be muddy, it could be wet, it could be dry. It grows in all these places. And if we, if we perfect this method called a cellulosic method of, of turning uh, any kind of woody substance into alcohol, we could regrow this stuff instead of corn. You know, we could regrow it in, in places that farmers don't get paid to grow things in, and uh, produce a lot more electricity per pound of of switchgrass than you'll get per pound of corn. And we won't drive up the price of corn, and there won't be you know food shortage of corn. There are all kinds of other things to do. Look at this race toward wind energy. Texas, another another George Bush state. When George Bush was there, Texas was ranked number two in wind energy, uh, right behind California. Last year, it took over the lead. Texas is now the biggest wind-producing electric state in the country. It produces 25% of all the wind-powered electricity in the country. T. Boone Pickens, the oil billionaire from Texas, just announced that he's going to build the biggest wind farm in the country, in the panhandle. And he's also going to build the wires and the cables and the infrastructure to get the electricity out of those areas to the homes. You talk to farmers all over the country... They're standing in line to get wind power on their own farms. They get paid by electric utilities thousands of dollars a year per wind turbine to produce electricity for them. They can't make any money on milk, but they can make a lot of money on electricity. Right. Why not create this infrastructure? I, I was quite shocked to realize that a lot of our prime wind, uh, wind farm areas, as it were, are really kind of off the grid because there aren't the wires hooking them up. So you're proposing, yeah. in some cases, we may want to generate hydrogen on site using solar or using wind and then transport the hydrogen. Yeah, you know, the, the three states, uh, if you take Texas, you take North Dakota, and you take Kansas, there's enough wind in those three states 
that the U.S. government said if we had wind farms in those places, we could have enough electricity to run the whole country on. As you point out, it's a question of how do we get the electricity out of those states. And I talk about it in the book that there are two ways of doing it. One is you build the wires, bring the wires back into those states, or you do what every science fair experimenter kid knows. When you take a battery and you stick it in a glass of salt water, hydrogen comes out of one terminal and oxygen bubbles out of the other one. You're, you're separating the hydrogen and the oxygen in the H2O. Well, you can do that with a windmill. You can take the electricity out, stick it in some water, it's available everywhere, and turn it into hydrogen and then ship it off. Take it away and now you're basically transferring the electricity. Because basically hydrogen just is a carrier of the electricity and you can turn it back with a fuel cell or some other way. You can, you can burn it in a car, an internal combustion engine, and you've now taken that stuff away and used it somewhere else. You just have to have the will to do this stuff. You need a plan. Get a new plan, Stan. You know, you need, to, you need to figure out a way to make this stuff work, and it's not impossible. Well, we're, unfortunately, we're up against it on time here. I just had one final question and comment. Uh, what is it you're most keen to cover in the next six months to year? A lot of things are breaking out there. What, what, what's most exciting to you? Well, we're coming up on an election year. So um, this, I, I think following the, the, the candidates on their positions on some of the more controversial issues, energy, for example, you know, who's going who's gonna to step up to the plate and say these things about what we need to do to become, you know, energy independent. Global warming. Who's going to propose ways, you know, what do we do about uh, rising sea levels? Who's going to propose spending the money to, to cap uh, carbon emissions? We have uh, genetic engineering questions. We have uh, uh, embryonic stem cell questions. We will be looking at all these issues as they become relevant in, in the election cycle ahead of us. Well, just final comment for maybe future future shows on, on Science Friday. You just made passing mention in the book about the green flash. Uh, that's something I've ah. seen many times in sunsets over the ocean, and you're speculating that maybe it's an afterimage of the red sun. Having seen it many times, I don't think it is that, and I have seen photos that capture it next to the setting solar disk, so uh, I think it still remains a mystery. It is still a mystery. You know, it, People swear they see a green flash, or other people swear they see flashes when earthquakes happen. <laughs> hmm. You know, from the piezoelectric, the squeezing of the crystals in the rock. So I don't doubt that either. That's the fun of doing science. I mean, it's a life-learning experience. You sit every day and you read new stuff that's happening, and, you know, it's just a, it's a joy to, to figure out how the Earth works. I have a quote in there from Richard Feynman. We talked about him, and uh, he talks about why it, he loves to find out how things work and why he can look at a flower and, and love its beauty for the beauty's sake but he also can appreciate it for because he, he understands the biology and the physics of the flower, and he gives him an added element. That's basically how I look at the Earth, too. Our guest has been NPR's Ira Flato, host of Talk of the Nation Science Friday. His new book, Present at the Future, From Evolution to Nanotechnology, Candid and Controversial Conversations on Science and Nature. Ira Flato, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Ira Flato's previous books include Rainbows, Curveballs, and They All Laughed. Science Friday can be heard locally on NPR affiliates KXJZ 90.9 FM and KQEI 89.3 FM. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break and come back and talk some more science. <laughs> 